Parents, just a heads up, we're going to be talking about some grown-up topics today, like S-E-X. Okay, with that, on to the show. Welcome to San Francisco. Hop off that cable car and walk with us to 1620 Polk Street. Inside this building, you'll find a series of glass cases. And they're filled with strange, clunky-looking machines. Some have hand cranks. Others are in the shape of hair dryers. And you might think to yourself, what is this? Some kind of collection of antique blenders? It's not. These, well, they're vibrators. You heard me. Vibrators. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura. A celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we are taking you on a tour through the Good Vibrations Antique Vibrator Museum, and along with it, a short history of sex and sexuality. That is after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself. You might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. The Good Vibrations Antique Vibrator Museum is about the size of a living room. And in glass cases around the walls, arranged in chronological order, are about 100 vibrators, dating all the way back from the late 1800s up to the early 1970s. And some of them are these beautiful, lustrous, jewel-toned pieces of plastic. Others, not so much. They were super steampunk-looking in the early 20th century and before. They were definitely... Little machines. This is our tour guide, Carol Queen. Carol is the museum's curator, has a PhD in sexology, and has worked at Good Vibrations for decades. For our first stop on the tour, Carol wanted to introduce us to one of the oldest vibrators in the museum's collection. It's called the VD Vibratory Massager. And whether it was supposed to make you think of venereal disease, I don't actually know. That's lost in the mists of time, at least as far as my information uh, uh, sources are concerned. The VD is old school. No batteries, no electricity. It's got a hand crank. It kind of looks like an egg beater, if I'm honest. And the museum has an old photo of a doctor holding a similar vibrator 
using one hand to operate the crank and the other to press the applicator end of it against a standing woman's back. Yes, her back. In the late 1800s, most people would have come into contact with vibrators in the context of a doctor's office. In the vibrator's early days, it was seen as this kind of cure-all for all kinds of medical problems. And it was used at first in the doctor's office and then later in the home. There is a uh, 19-teens book that was published by the Hamilton Beach Company. Yes, the same company that makes the blender that we make our margaritas on in Friday night, uh, which made vibrators and was one of the major vibrator manufacturers. There were many, but they're one of the major ones in the, in the 19-teens. So Hamilton Beach made a vibe, and they published a book called Health and How to Get It. And it's Surprise, all about using your vibrator to cure your various health conditions. Got a backache? Use a vibrator on your back. Feeling gassy? Use it on your stomach. Got influenza? Just use it on your face. The Hamilton Beach Book even recommended using a vibrator to treat tuberculosis. You could vibrate all day, all night, all over your body, and it would not cure your tuberculosis. Notice that we haven't said anything about using vibrators sexually. And it's the subject of an interesting debate. In the 1990s, technology historian Rachel Maines hypothesized that doctors may have used vibrators on women patients to simulate uh, hysterical paroxysm, a.k.a. an orgasm, as a way of treating hysteria. Hysteria was once a frequent diagnosis, no longer used today, but a diagnosis for a broad range of symptoms in women, everything from anxiety to sexual appetite. In recent years, other historians have pushed back, saying there isn't enough evidence to support the idea that doctors actually used vibrators and orgasms in this way, as a way to treat hysteria. But this question about what vibrators were for and how they were used, whether they were sexual devices or used for other health ailments, this followed the vibrator throughout its history, including as it left the doctor's office and entered the home. In 1917, in the United States, there were more electric vibrators in homes than there were electric toasters. That's how common they were. They were not secretive. You didn't have to go to a guy in a trench coat to buy one. It's hard to tell who knew what or how exactly people were using all these vibrators. But from the late 19-teens onward, the idea of using these devices in a sexual context was becoming slightly more widespread thanks to the rise of blue movies or dirty pictures. But advertisers still marketed them for their more above-the-waist purposes. The ads were always emphasizing health, vigor, and beauty. By the 1930s in particular, they were like, ooh, use it for your complexion. Your complexion will be lovely. And of course it will. If you have enough orgasms, your complexion looks great. So my favorite ad says, almost like a miracle, is the healing power of vibration when rightly applied. And honestly, that is real. That is super true. By the time you get to the 1950s, Vibrators are being marketed for another purpose, weight loss. In the museum's collection are some of these scary-looking little machines, like the bright green spot reducer with a vibrating suction cup. And Carol Queen says that maybe some people really did buy the spot reducer thinking it would help them lose weight, 
and only later discovered its other benefits. But then came the 60s and 70s, the sexual revolution. And that's the era when everything changed. Birth control became more widely available. Sex became a little bit less taboo. And vibrators became explicitly sexual and explicitly about pleasure. But that transformation to sex toy also made buying a vibrator a little more complicated. This is a scientific term, dirty bookstores. Women didn't want to go in there. Now, I should just say I was... I was a woman in the 1970s, and I went into dirty bookstores because I was curious and a little frisky. And there were plenty of women who were curious and frisky and plenty of women who could say to their partner, hey, you know that place down in the strip mall? Would you go in there and bring me one of those things that vibrates? And their partner would say, sure, honey. And it would be called a marital aid in that context. But there were plenty of women who were off-put or fearful or it was just not okay for them to go. Good Vibrations opened as a sex shop in 1977. Its founder, Joni Blank, had been working at UC San Francisco counseling women who weren't having orgasms. And she'd suggest, try a vibrator. And she kept hearing the same concern over and over, that the places where one could go buy a vibrator felt too intimidating, too sleazy. To Joni Blank, it was important to have a shop that felt welcoming, with a staff that was trained to answer people's questions about sex without judgment. And the history element, the Antique Vibrator Museum, it was built into the store from the beginning. Joni really wanted to make sure that people knew that there was a history, that this wasn't just a brand new thing that the sexual revolution had wrought. Our grandmothers, great-great-grandmothers, etc., going back to the 19th century, might have had a vibrator. Now, they probably would have had a vibrator for a little bit different reason than the women who were walking into Good Vibrations in 1977. But they could see in this little case of vibrators with a little sign that said Antique Vibrator Museum on it, it was clear that there was a history. And that was important for her to convey. To Carol Queen, it says, look, see how clandestine sex and pleasure used to be? She wants to make sure that it doesn't become that way again. We cannot guarantee that the changes that have been made by generations of people who feel that this is a more just and healthy and pleasure-filled and right way to live will be preserved. There will be some people fighting to preserve them, and there are some people who don't agree with that, clearly. To me, that proves that this is important sociocultural stuff. And the fact that I get to sit around part of the time thinking about it in a museum full of vibrators that shows social change from one end to the other, honestly, it's pretty perfect. If you want to visit Good Vibrations, the museum is free to peruse, and you can find more info at antiquevibratormuseum.com. Thank you to Carol Queen for telling us all about the history of The Vibrator. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall, and I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you 
next time. Boy, it is good you can't see blushing over the radio. Witness Docs from Stitcher.